Hello, friends. My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. Recently, I was in Mexico, and I met a man named Lawrence Coe. Lawrence is a highly successful businessman. He is the founder and CEO of International Diversified Products, and he also founded the Students for a Better Tomorrow Foundation, which mentors youth in relation-building and entrepreneurial business skills. And I was really impressed when I met Lawrence, and I asked him to be on my podcast, and he said, I'd be happy to, but I leave on a plane at 7.30 tomorrow morning. Uh, so we would have to do the podcast at 6 a.m. I said, let's do it. So we recorded this out on a deck overlooking the ocean down in Mexico at 6 in the morning, which is why I'm a little slow to get going in this episode. But Lawrence tells some fascinating stories and gives very useful insight into the business of business. What goes on behind the scenes when these big deals are being made? How to have a healthy relationship with money? How to ask for what you really need? And much, much more. Speaking of asking for what you really need, if you like this podcast and want to donate to it, I would be very, very grateful. Even just a few bucks a month keeps me going. I produce this whole thing myself, and I've actually gotten some of my surf sponsors to donate gear to all of the donors. So even just a few bucks a month, and you will be entered into a raffle where you could win gear from Patagonia. We just gave away a Sector 9 skateboard last month, um, and you'll be supporting something good. So head over to my website, kyle.surf, to support the podcast, and I would be grateful. All right. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lawrence Coe. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So what are you what are most of your trips um why are you why are you traveling so much? So in business, um there are many components to it. The most important component is the component of trust. And so delivering something via email, um, having a conversation via Skype is is dramatically different than meeting somebody face-to-face. Right. Yeah, even um, in the age of technology, big business deals seem to be done in person, right? You make the you fly over, you look someone in the eye, you shake their hand. Um, as much as we have all of this technology, we really still do rely on that human-to-human connection, it seems like. 
There's a vast difference between meeting somebody face to face and having a conference call with them, you know, via Skype or some or Zoom or one of those apps. Will you make um, business? Will you wait on a lot of your decisions until you meet someone? No, no. I, I I'll wait until uh, I meet someone to make any decision. Right. Um, so bring me into an example of, of one of these trips and kind of bring me into your life. Um, so a typical example might be um, I have an idea to do something with the equivalent Pfizer in China. And rather than send something over, I don't know if you know much about the Asian culture, but in Asia... Um, you never do business the first day. You'll get together with them, you'll have dinner the whole night long, you never talk about business. You just socialize. The next day, you'll socialize some more in the morning, and um, probably only till about midday do you first start to mention something about the business. And you don't mention it until they mention it, because then, then you'll know they're comfortable enough with you. Wow, and, and when and when they do mention uh, business the following day, you'll know how receptive they are to you by the tone and tenor of what they talk about when they talk about business. I'm sure you've had a lot of practice learning how to read people um, in those first couple days. <laughs> tremendously, tremendously. That that's actually one of the reasons they drink so much the day before. They want to see exactly how you are when you're uninhibited. Wow. That's so funny. Um, that's so funny to hear that that's the way that it really happens with a lot of these. So, so um, what's an example of a, a big business deal? Just walk me through that, that process. What are we not seeing from the outside? Okay. Uh, I'll give you an example. I happen to be in Manhattan. Um, meeting with one of our customers and I had a three-hour window of time and I went to uh, the showcase store of this retailer and I wanted to get a pair of tennis shoes so I chose the shoes that I wanted and because um, I have compared to most Americans a small size foot they only had one pair of shoes in my size and after 25 minutes, I'm saying, what is taking so long? And the guy said, well, your shoes are stuck in um, the merchandise elevator. And I said, where is that? <laughs> he says, well, lean over the rail and you'll be able to see it because the walls were acrylic. And I looked at that and I said, well, how often does this happen? Oh, he said, it happens all the time. This is the worst system. And I went down a few floors down and I got a better look at the um, unit and I said here's the problem this is made for a horizontal application and your company is using it for a vertical application he said well how do you know that and I said well I can tell because nobody would build a vertical driven system using a motor with a gear that goes up and down a track it's uh, but the more weight you put in it, the hotter the right. motor gets, and then it just stalls. So, 
got my shoes uh, finally once the motor cooled down I made an appointment with the home office the corporate office and I proposed a system for them and uh, they said well how much will this system cost I said well uh, I'm not actually quite sure but um, I said I can put one here near your corporate office that you can test I said you can uh, probably purchase it for about sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars and um, he said well how many of these have you built I said we haven't built any <laughs> this is what I'm proposing to you and he said are you kidding get out of my office you think I'm gonna be your guinea pig I said well I was thinking you would have that kind of a reaction but I have a offer for you you can't refuse and he said what's that I said I'm going to install it in your store here I'm going to let you run it for six months you don't think it's the best system you've ever seen I'll pull it out and put your old system back in for free well just the legal fees to do that was more than the system itself but um, they let us do it and um, probably 11 years 12 years later we ended up installing them in most of their stores around the world wow so a lot of what you're doing is making systems more efficient that's a good way to look at it um that's a, probably a generic way to look at it i'm always looking at um bringing value so value is brought two ways one is where you can make something much better. Uh, the other, and, and that's usually, um, I usually focus on the experience. What experience can I provide that will be significantly different than their current experience? So it could be a system. It could be a service. It could be uh, a software. could be a mechanical device could be a motion system uh, but I usually focus in terms of what's the difference in the experience I can make for that individual or that company and you work across in industry then so you work in technology you'll work in retail it doesn't really matter what it is it's about improving using your mind to improve the experience <laughs> yes is I'll give right? you an example yeah uh, so my wife and I were eating uh, dinner in this Italian restaurant and the server comes over and I look at her tie and she was wearing this white tie with all of these Dr. Seuss characters maybe about three quarters of an inch to one inch height and these Dr. Seuss characters were doing all of these zany things but the tie was alive and I said wow where did you get your tie she says um actually paint these by hand and the owner of the restaurant lets me sell them during Christmas time to make some extra money. Would you like to buy one? I said, uh, no, but would you be interested in designing a Dr. Seuss uh, apparel line? And she said, oh, my, my dad already tried that. Um, they weren't interested. <laughs> I said, well, uh, would you like to work on it with me? And uh, on her... 23rd birthday I think it was uh, we flew to New York to meet with their management uh, company and out of 21 companies they ended up choosing ours 
And that first year, it did $58 million in sales. Wow. <laughs> so how, so what was um, bringing me into your mind when you first saw the Dr. Seuss um, characters? What was going on to make you think, huh, this is something that could um, be big business? It wasn't just the Dr. Seuss characters characters. It was her ability to interpret them doing things that Dr. Seuss would never do. So to give you an example, one of my favorite ones was uh, we um, created, so I would guide her in terms of you can do this, but you can't do that. Because in apparel construction, there's a whole process to patterns, cutting patterns, applying patterns when you're sewing panels together. Um, but one of the things that she did was she had this Dr. Seuss character sitting on this wall and on the shirt pocket. Uh, so it had a fishing line. He had a fishing line and the character uh, would drop the fishing line down and halfway out of the pocket was this fish coming out. And it was so marvelous because it actually, just like all of her other illustrations, they came alive. You know, it wasn't a sta- it, it it wasn't just a static uh, representation of the Dr. Seuss character. She had each of them doing something amazingly unique. Wow! And so then you help her with systems also to make it efficient for her to um, to build um, to build this apparel to make correct? it producible, right? Well, and make it so that you can have um, a decent markup so that it can be a profitable business, correct? Yeah. So in the process. That's another thing that I've developed over many years is the process of production, uh, whether it's automation or just assembly. So labor and materials, freight, those are the three major components of a person's raw material costs or, or basic costs, direct costs. What, sorry, say that again? What were the materials, freight? Materials, freight, and labor. Okay. Right. Those And under freight would... Uh, come import duty and things of that nature, okay. tariffs. Um, in uh, Europe, they have uh, VAT tax, value-added tax. Um, and then those are your uh, basic direct costs. And then there's a markup, that a standard markup that you take on that. And that markup is dependent upon largely uh, your marketing strategies. So if you're providing something wholesale, maybe you'll take a 40% markup. If you're doing something retail, you need a and you need a marketing budget. Oftentimes, well, minimally, it'll be double. Uh, in the wine business, let's say, um, typically what you pay for a glass of wine in a restaurant is what they pay for the whole bottle. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, we don't think about this right. when we're when we're buying the things that come into our lives. But you, but you constantly are thinking about this. What, um, what would you say have been um, some of the best decisions that you've made in business um, throughout your life in streamlining processes, in making those decisions that really, um, that really benefited? The commitment uh, is the most important thing. I believe you have to be very committed to what it is that you're doing 
and being committed because you want to make money versus being committed because you have a vision will cause you to make different choices it'll cause you to act differently and how you relate to I don't want to say failure but how you relate to unexpected occurrences hmm. because what most people don't realize is how you relate to unexpected occurrences will influence the outcome it always does in other words whatever your um, prolonged anticipation or expectation will be will likely result in that whether it's a positive or a negative thought um, what is a situation where um, you've had to react to um, something unanticipated that came up and it was really important for you to act in the right way well so I went through um, <laughs> a midlife crisis actually in my 30s um, left uh, my marriage and I had a five million dollar alimony that I owed and uh, I made an agreement or actually an offer to uh, give my ex-wife everything if she would write me a check for one month's rent for my apartment and so I was starting new in life and I had this idea that was actually introduced to me during one night over having dinner over a friend's house and uh, they brought me this little flyer and they said hey isn't this the kind of thing you do I said no but that's not a bad idea and I folded up the flyer and I, that little mailer and I put it in my pocket so probably more than 50 calls later I finally get an appointment with the uh, senior vice president at this Fortune 500 company. I fly to New York, make the presentation. And um, he starts negotiating payment terms. And I said, well, um, actually, we're not really able to offer you any payment terms. We need a letter of credit. A letter of credit is an instrument where the buyer puts up the money at the bank, guarantees it. And then based on the fulfillment of all of those conditions outlined in the letter of credit and your ability to pro provide documentation for that does the payment get released the guy says do you know who the hell we are we're not putting up a letter of credit I'm here looking for 45 60 day payment terms not to put money up front and I said well I can understand that we're actually a Hong Kong registered corporation we were and we need that letter of credit to be able to import the raw materials. Otherwise, we are going to have to pay VAT on that. And then we're going to have to charge you back for that VAT. If you want the product for the price that I offered, you're going to have to provide a letter of credit. Well, there were probably 12 other people in that boardroom. And uh, he got into this... Um, he got into swearing and yelling and raising his voice and slamming his fist on the desk. And I was just watching all of this. And I said to him, you know, I completely understand uh, your point of view. You've obviously never really imported anything before. Long story short, um, the guy said, we're not doing it. Get out of here. So I left and uh, about 
less than less than two weeks later, I get a call from a woman from that company, and she said, we, "We'd like to invite you to come back and present to us." Um, I says, "Well, what about Mr. So and So?" She said, "Well, we were so appalled of his treatment with you, we petitioned and signed a letter." to the chairman of the board and he was fired. So I came back and uh, we've been doing that program uh, for them since 1992. Wow. You seem like a man who doesn't get rattled easily in big business deals. This is something that um, that I think a lot of people struggle with when it comes, people are so uncomfortable with money. And I would say that I'm really just now in my life working hard to overcome um, asking for what I really need whether it be a a film budget or um, a sponsorship budget and there's that discomfort there's that feeling in the stomach where I'll think I I need this really that's what it would make that's what would make me happy but you know I could probably get it done for this and I find that people who are successful in business have a comfort and a a kind of grounding in them when they're talking about money. And I I see that with you. How did you develop that? (laughs) Well, I never used to be that way. You know, I, I grew up poor. So I went through that phase as well. And, um, in my life, uh, particularly in this stage of my life, and I'll be, uh, 65 this coming May. My focus is on the vision. And my presentations are always about the vision. And it's never about the money. And when people want to talk to me about the money, I will always focus on the potential, never on the money. Um, because what you're selling people on, what people are inspired by is the vision and the potential. And if you allow the conversation to rest on a sticking point of money, um, every, not everybody, but the majority of people operate on a subconscious thought about scarcity. And take somebody to take the lead and focus on the possibilities and not on the scarcity because scarcity is an unconscious common practice thought it's uh, presented promulgated throughout society as well this is a logical approach but it's actually not it's based on fear and if you understand that fear is a um, it's a mortal hallucination of the mind. And it's a process that we do. It's taught when we're very young. And it becomes a habit pattern. And it's almost impossible to break out of that, the field of that habit pattern, unless you have somebody leading it. And once it starts getting into, this is why, um, tell people never give people a range so it's like well it's going to cost somewhere between 250 to 300 thousand dollars you just tell them 300 thousand dollars 
you don't when people say well what do you want you don't say well I would be happy with somewhere between 15 to 25 percent you just tell them 25 percent because they'll always choose the lower number right and so when it comes to to money it's really never about the money it's about the fear and the fear is not real it's it seems real because there's an emotion emotional component to it there's a mental component to it but you have to realize that it's all imagined because it's not even happening if you're going to pretend then you might as well pretend in a positive way where uh, you're you and everybody else are going to win where so you you say you grew up poor I um, did. bring me into that and some of the earliest lessons you learned in business well my father was a chronic gambler and uh, no matter what my mother and father earned it was always gambled away and one night um, my mother woke us up in our bedroom in uh, Maryland and said we're leaving your father you can grab one toy we snuck out of the house she took us to the airport she put us on a plane she said you're going to San Francisco to live with your aunt I'll be out there in a couple of weeks and I said well what does she look like <laughs> she said well, when you get off the plane, just look for someone who looks like me. When we got off the plane on the other side, we slept on uh, their dining room floor for months. We moved 13 times in 11 years because we kept getting evicted from place to place. My mother worked two full-time jobs, so we really only saw her on Sundays. And, of course... You know, I went wayward, just like my brother and sister did as well. And um, I got involved in gangs and drugs because there was camaraderie there. And um, crime was a way of buying my school clothes. So that's how I grew up. And uh, it was only when I was uh, 18 years old when uh, I went to Marin County to buy my largest purchase of cocaine Um, there was an FBI raid and I jumped over a few fences and too scared to go back to my car walked all the way back to San Francisco and that long long walk when I finally arrived in the late morning the next day I had lots of time to think and now as a juvenile delinquent I was constantly getting uh, caught by the police and I didn't really care because I was just going to go to juvenile detention or down to the city police station but I realized now that I'm 18 I'm going to the penitentiary and that's when I stopped because I I was caught so often I knew that it was only a matter of time when I was going to be caught as an adult and the thought of actually being locked up for years was terrifying to me and that's when I made the change wow yeah what um what did you learn about business um, dealing drugs at a young age? Well, there's that whole uh, relationship between uh, price and demand, quality and demand, supply and demand. Um, and it was, um, you know, it was early on that I realized that those aren't laws, that's psychology. And um, so it doesn't always follow 
it doesn't always follow those patterns when you're working with somebody and selling somebody one-on-one. And if you understand the psychology of uh, what they want, you can actually bend those rules quite a bit. Wow. So when did you, when did you learn that? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a when. It was just like, so you can already see that if I grew up that poor, I never went to college. And uh, the first and most important thing I had to overcome was the belief that I was dumb and that I was stupid and that you had to go to college in order to be successful. That was the greatest hurdle in my life. Um, I remember my first job as a manufacturer sales rep. I would, I didn't actually really know what was the matter with me. I would sleep 12 hours, get in my car, have a couple of sales calls, and I'd have to go down, find some place some parking lot or some place to sleep because I would get so sleepy. It was like somebody slipped me uh, some kind of narcotic and I could not stay awake. And it was only after probably months of doing this I realized the confrontation, the psychological and emotional confrontation of seeing people when I had such little self-confidence. I had such terrifying experience of sitting in front of somebody looking at them in the eyes and talking to them about anything when I was really in my mind there to make money and I thought that there was this deceit going on I was here to make money and I had to pretend that I was there uh, to visit with them and engage with them and show them what I had um, and it, it took a long time to get through that right. psychologically. Right. It seems like there wasn't the vision of what yeah. <laughs> selling cocaine seemed purely about the money rather than some grand vision that you you seem to engage yourself in industries now that you really believe in. Um, and that can provide an, an, an extra amount of energy. So something it. happened. Um, one of the companies that I represented was a belt company. And this guy uh, was a fantastic designer. He was so good. And these were not the kind of belts that you sell in stores. These are the kind of belts that you uh, buy a garment and uh, the garment already has the belt on it. And so I was selling these belts to uh, garment manufacturers. And his line became so hot and it was my biggest earning line, and they couldn't deliver because the de- they, uh, the demand exceeded their ability to supply. And it was way before the internet. And he would tell the customers constantly, "God, we sent it out by United Parcel. You didn't get it. Well, I, we're we're willing to make it for you again. We'll file the claim with United Parcel." but it's going to take X amount of weeks more. And they kept doing this over and over to all of my different customers. And I realized, these guys are just lying. They're just lying. And so I decided I was going to start my own belt company. So How, uh, how old are you at this point? Um, I was 20. 20. So you had that long walk from Marin to San Francisco. 
Yes, and this was a couple of years later. I, okay. got, I got a job as a manufacturer's rep. I sold buttons and belts and zippers and elastic, things like accessories for apparel manufacturers. And I, I'll kind of skip how I got into Levi Strauss, but that's an interesting story in itself. And uh, I went and saw this designer and I showed her these belts that I designed. She asked me how much they were, I told her, and I got my very first order for 144,000 belts, which I cut on top of my ping pong table with this young El Salvadorian guy who could sew, because I didn't know how to sew. And um, I would never have guessed what was going to happen, because in less than four years, <laughs> we were making 550,000 belts a month. And that was my first business. And I did that from uh, 20 years old till I was 32. And then I, uh, after the divorce, I started this company. And um, what, so Which company? Uh, International Diversified Products. So we are a product and technology development company. It took me four or five years to come up with that description because I, I, I was an inventor. You know, I'm an idea person and nobody wants to hear uh, that they're doing business with an idea person. So I thought, I need to, some credible way to describe what I do. And um, that's when I came up with, um, I own a product and technology development company. And that, <laughs> that always elicited the next question. Well, what kind of products and technologies? And then I, I had, that was the opportunity I had to describe my company and what we did and the kind of things that we've done. And still, when people ask me, what is it that you do? And I tell them, the very next question out of their mouth is, what kind of products, what kind of technologies? It's always the same, but it's always the invitation to say what we do and right. what we've done. Right. It's, it's interesting how important that initial pitch is when we meet someone, how, how it is that we describe ourselves. Right. right. It's, it's, um, it's that first impression right? That can either elicit curiosity or it can elicit judgment. Um, this whole range of emotions based off of the first sentence or two that we tell someone when we, when we meet them. Yes, because we establish a perception. And on that note, here is really the bottom line of, um, of all business, probably life <laughs> as a whole is... That's quite a preamble. <laughs> It's true, and I'm going to tell you, when, when I tell you, you'll see it. Because beliefs create perceptions. Perceptions dictate actions. And when I say actions, I mean conversations, communications, word choices, uh, body language, all of it. And that has this subconscious influence on the other people or other person in uh, your presence. And beliefs create these perceptions which create our actions, the way we communicate. And that, in turn, produces the outcome. And there's a, probably one of the most famous studies at UCLA. It was on communication. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but they, they studied thousands and thousands of people. 
And what they determined was when it came to communication and what influenced people the most, it was measured that 58% on the average uh, was a person's body language. 35% was voice related, voice intonation, cadence, uh, changes in volume. And then only 7% was the content, what they said and the words they chose. <laughs> so when you realize that 93% of your influence upon a person is your body language, your eye movement, your hand gestures, and voice-related features, you begin to understand why beliefs are so important. Right. And, and, and the perceptions that we impart upon somebody is so influential. Yeah, it really makes a difference. And just um, in the past few months of doing this podcast, I've become so much more aware of my verbal tics. <laughs> and being a surfer, we have these really hunched over shoulders. <laughs> so I tend to have horrible posture. <laughs> and all of these verbal tics that I'm trying to overcome right now. But it really does make a difference. When I sit across the table from you, um, you you're very composed. And it has an effect on the words coming out of your mouth also. Whereas um, sometimes, you know, if you, you can just tell about people because it really does, uh, you can read them, right? And uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. I think maybe more than composed, I'm comfortable. Mm. Um, you meditate quite a bit, correct? I do. Um, I've been meditating since uh, February of 1986. What has that done for you? Probably, uh, probably that more than anything was what had me feel comfortable with life. How did you um, come upon meditating? Because um, in my earlier part of my life, I was very involved in personal growth. Personal growth was mostly uh, mental structures on what to do, how to practice. Um, it started mostly in San Francisco uh, through people like Werner Earhart, um, Ram Dass, people like that. And I just wanted to be effective in life. You know, I just wanted to have some level of certainty about life and did years of that. And what it primarily, what I primarily walked away with was uh, a whole tool chest of things to judge myself by that um, esoteric things like, you know, we're the ones who create, promote, and allow everything in our lives. Well, I wasn't happy with my life. Um, and all I could do was use that to judge myself more and more with. I mean, it was, you know, everybody has some degree of self-abuse until, until they've awakened. And then when you realize that you're the one who's beating yourself up and that uh, you'll never climb out of that hole, you'll never have what you truly want in life if you keep doing that. And by the way, you know, the whole bait and switch thing of life, 
everything we truly want in life can only occur at the level of an experience. But yet we're taught that if we have these materialistic possessions, if we make a certain amount of money, our happiness will be directly proportional to that or at least closely represented to that quantity. It's not true. It's the whole thing <laughs> is a lie. And when I, that was the first, uh, that was, that was a collapse that I had the first time in my life when I had made a lot of money. I could not imagine that I was going to live another two-thirds of my life and that was the best it was going to get. So, the controller of my company, uh, I remember the first day of work, she shows up and I forgot I was doing something and she comes and she says, excuse me, Lawrence, uh, the president of such and such a company, this is one of my vendors, I would like to know when uh, you're going to bring their account current in payment. I said, just tell them we already mailed out the check. And she said, well, I can't do that. It's okay with me if you do it, but I can't do that. I said, what? <laughs> I could not believe somebody was going to go against something that I said. And she said, well, it's okay with me if you lie, but I, I can't do that. And she, after 14 years, she ended up becoming my best friend. And she was very much into meditating, and she was into this whole spiritual practice. And after my divorce, I, I found her, and I called her up. I said, I want to uh, do what you're doing. Because she, she was so calm, and she was so poised, and she was so comfortable about saying no to me. And she did it with such compassion and such respect. It was so disarming. I wanted whatever that was that she had. I wanted some of it. And um, she introduced me to this spiritual practice. And one of the things that they kept promoting was this idea of meditating two hours a day. And it's like, what? Two hours a day? And I thought, well, I could probably do it. Oh, my gosh. After 10 or 15 minutes, I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. And I, d I never did it for the three or four months that it took me to get up to two hours to do it for a peace of mind. I did it because it was a competition. And I thought, well, Jesus, if they can do it, I can do it. Um, and, then, uh, <laughs> and then after a while, it kind of led me down this beautiful path in my life. And do you still meditate? I do. When you travel? Particularly when I travel, it's it's how I overcome jet lag. Um, like I've just uh, two days prior to coming here, I just finished uh, a twenty-seven thousand mile trip uh, over uh, a ten-day period. So you can imagine, I really wasn't getting adjusted to any of the time zones uh, that I that I went through. But the process of meditating when I was on a train, when I was on a plane, when I was in the airport. Uh, takes the edge off of it, and it it's um I wouldn't say it's rejuvenating, but it is um it is um, mildly refreshing right <laughs> it's like a little mint yeah exactly. <laughs> bad breath right <laughs> um tell me about brand for good 
So Brand for Good was an idea that came upon me uh, 13 years ago. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, term, came upon me, because when I take a look at any idea that I've ever had in my life, that's how I would describe it. It came upon me. And since I'm one of those people who has lots of ideas, and then I was, uh, I was guest speaking one time and one of the people in the audience said, so how do you know what ideas to do? I said, well, um, there are good ideas and there are great ideas. And I always choose the great ideas. And they said, well, how do you know the difference between a good idea and a great idea? And I said, a good idea is what you ought to do, and a great idea is what I ought to do. Now, that has more to do with a person's, what resonates with a person, not the idea itself. And this was an idea that really resonated with me. The idea was, if you can understand how much capitalism drives the world, all the prosperity in the world, if you can imagine all the money that comes upon Wall Street, and if you could harness that and redirect it, and if you could get agreement throughout the world that they love what you're doing, then we could redirect that in some kind of positive way. And so the idea was to create thousands of products and services of which all of the profits would go to benefit humanity and the planet. And so if we could do that, we could end poverty. And not, a, not to give people money, to create the things that are currently unaccessible to people and make them accessible. Because that's the true cause of poverty. Nothing else. Accessibility. Okay. Um, so what does that look like in the pragmatic sense of, of what you did and how you are following um, that vision? So as an example, regardless of how much seed, regardless of how much land you give the impoverished in Ethiopia, what are they going to do? <laughs> Even if they had the water and the right soil to grow that produce, where are they going to sell it? Now, they could become sustenance farmers, but they'll never be able to get into the money system, right? And the money system is um, a, a very closed-loop system, right? There, there are these... There are these uh, paper and coin symbols that somebody made up. They created it. <laughs> they control it. They, uh, the whole system of exchange throughout the world operates on this. And if you don't, if you, if there's not a way for them to get into the system, they end up living in poverty. So the idea was, if I could convince people who had these huge foundations, if I could meet with Oprah, the Clintons, the people who, Bono, <laughs> and, and I've met with them. To, and the first four years of my life was to 
tell them what they could do with their foundations to make it sustainable. And they could use their celebrityism, their star power, and all of their celebrity friends to get on board, spread the message, create the influence, the attraction in the um, minds of people throughout the world. And after four years, I couldn't get one person to see the genius in it. And then I had come back from uh, Rwanda to after meeting with President Kagame. And um, I, I probably had to do with it. It took me 47 hours to get home from my hotel room. Uh, I was exhausted and I started thinking back on the plane ride how much I had depleted our uh, savings account, <laughs> traveling all over the world, uh, meeting with these people, these people of influence. And after not getting any buy-in, I thought, that's it. I've, I, <laughs> I've done my best with this one. I, uh, I can see when something's uh, not, not going to work. And then um, a couple days later, I was going through the jet lag thing and I was doing some meditation. Now, my meditation goes like this. Close my eyes, start practicing my breathing, and then the stream of thoughts come in. Up, oh, remember to pick up your dry cleaning. Up, oh, remember to pay the phone bill. Up, oh, remember to do this. Up, oh, remember to return this call. And what I've learned is, if I write each of those things on a tablet next to me, they stop recycling and the mind goes very quiet and so I was in that quiet state just starting to get into the zone and I had this little fleeting thought huh I wonder why I would have that thought without the ability to do it and then I heard this reply say you're not doing it and in that moment I knew that it was the idea it was the right idea and the right time would come. And so whenever I had the opportunity to talk about that with anybody of influence, I would. I what, didn't know what, it was going to take 13 years to actually get some traction. Uh, and what does that traction look like now? <laughs> so um, I have a friend who's married to a very famous pop singer. And I called him up and I said, hey... I was wondering if I could meet with your wife and talk to her about this idea that I have. He said, well, what do you want to talk to her about? I said, oh, I'll put it in an email. You can just let her read it. So I did, and two days later I met with her and was telling her about Brand for Good, and we could create uh, an array of household products, and she could use her celebrityism and get her friends on board and we could change the world it would just be this beginning we'll just keep rolling out products and uh, she said okay I love it and because she's a singer I said and one of the first things we can do is we can bring your other singer friends on and we can restore music and arts back into public schools so that was the goal and uh, it took me nine months to develop uh, an array of botanically based products she was um, she was adamant that she had to love the products before she would stamp her name on it 
and uh, said sure and after nine months we got the approval on all the products she loved them and then it was about adding the fragrance well the chemist's mother took ill he flew back to India disappeared and she decided uh, several months later that she was going to go on a world tour and the whole project came to a screeching halt and one day during that stalled period um, my employee sent me this YouTube video on this 13 year old boy who claims to have created a device out of a coffee can a spoon some copper wire and things like that and could light up a string of lights LED lights on his brother so I saw the video and I go oh, that's kind of cute and then I deleted it and then three weeks later somebody sends me a, a YouTube video says you're gonna love this and it was um, a boy who was being asked what is God and I watched this video and I thought my god I have never heard anybody articulate how I experience God which is pretty unconventional um, and I thought oh my god could that be the same boy so I called uh, my employee that weekend. I said, can you send me that first video of that kid with the coffee can uh, invention? And she sent it, and I thought, God, it is the same boy. So my son and I were in the kitchen uh, Sunday morning at around 7 a.m. I said to him, you have to watch this video of this boy explaining about God. He's exactly your age. We watched it, and, and he goes, huh cool <laughs> I said no it's phenomenal and he goes I bet you're gonna contact him I said you're right I'm gonna contact him right now and I uh, searched throughout the internet and found his father who lived in Lake Tahoe and uh, I sent him a message uh, via LinkedIn he responds back uh, with thank you so much for reaching out when you call me you're not gonna believe the story I'm gonna tell you so I called him and we had a wonderful conversation he said would you like to talk to Max his son I said sure so we all talked and had a wonderful um, connection and we were just about to hang up and I said well, wait a minute well, what's the story you have to tell me he says well I was sitting out on the deck with my wife overlooking the lake and he said, people are throwing money at us because they, they so much want to work with my son. And the wife said, well, I, you know, I guess we've got everything we need. And he said, no, we don't need money. We need somebody who has expertise in manufacturing and supply chain. And when you contacted me, I looked at your LinkedIn profile and it was exactly that. And I said, Jesus. And he said, I showed my wife your LinkedIn profile on my phone. And she said, oh my God, that's so creepy. It's like somebody is listening in on us. And that has, there, there have probably been more than 20 of those with this boy, uh, between me and the boy or me and the family related to this project. And now in... Um, in 60 days, we're due to ship our first order um, 
against a purchase order of $50 million. Wow. Yeah, that's quite something. And so, <laughs> so that became the first product to, to, to launch under Brand for Good. And meanwhile, I have uh, lots of household cleaning products with no fragrance if you want some. <laughs> I want to have Max on my podcast. <laughs> oh, he's phenomenal. Oh, Just wow. phenomenal. Bum, bum, bum. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hey, before you take off, please take two minutes and give this podcast a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. If you're listening from iTunes, the way you do that is type in the search button, click the Kyle Tierman Show. Even if you're on it right now, you need to go to search and then click the Kyle Tierman Show. And then uh, there's a place where you can leave a review. It's stupid that they make it that complicated to do it and a number of you have asked how to leave a review but it's really helpful and it allows other people to find this podcast all right hope you're having a great day see you soon